guys welcome back i am manning the stage solo today kendall is not with us and she graciously gave the mic to these two clowns so i have my friend rachel wesson on today as some context we were talking about sober curiosity and what sobriety means to me and kendall honestly for the past year or so but also in season two we discussed that with her friend brie who has been sober for many years and the reception to that episode was a lot bigger than we were anticipating. So we're realizing there's a lot of conversation that is wanted in this space and people are interested in learning a little bit more about sobriety. I have on no other than my friend Rachel Wesson. So as some background, and then I'll let her talk. Uh, I've known Rachel since we were nine years old. Uh, we met through a mutual friend and we're all still very good friends sitting here proudly at 31. And we have had, I mean, decades of memories together. And so it's just been fascinating to know Rachel way before even a sip of alcohol entered our lives and then going to college together and we lived together after college and looking at what our life looks like now and all that we have transformed in ourselves. So lots to discuss. Rach, welcome. Welcome to Woo Woo School. Hi. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Yay, yay, yay. Okay. So <laughs> I don't even know where to know. start. Our friend group started drinking around, let's just say, 17. I know exactly when. Do you? You want to talk about the first time? Were we together the first time you got drunk? <laughs> oh, Angela. Let me take you back. To, I know to my first time. When, okay, when was your first time? I it, Halloween, when I was just like a cop with Katie and Avery. But were you there that day? Okay, maybe I wasn't there. I think I remember those outfits. Your 16th birthday. Oh, surely. Yes. A fateful night starting at, was it Razoo's? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was Razoo's. It was. We were all dressed up yeah. um, we to were. invoke the spirit of Kendall. Kendall was actually there. Too. Yeah, she was. We, we went to, started the party at Razoo's. Then we went to your house, the, the pool house, which mm -hmm. is now a pool house, but at the time was truly a garage a glorified shed <laughs> yeah and we had pulled a bottle of god knows what from your parents bar and got to sip in got to sip do you in. remember that yeah of course I remember so that was my 17th birthday so I think maybe 13 women there children all of us on, all of us on the <laughs> ping pong yeah, table we had the it. ping pong table yes we were dancing on top of the ping pong table so the it was a it was a game room is a generous term it was a garage that was not attached to my house right. in hindsight my parents were smart to have a place that people could stay on site 
So I was the firstborn of four. And as my younger two siblings got into high school, my parents completely redid that into a now functioning game room. We had a whole shower. It had a bath. It had beds. It had a fridge. Uh, We imagine there was no bathroom. There was no, no this was roughing it. But it was a place that we could sort of have privacy in quotes because my dad did hear the loud boom of us breaking the ping pong table, which we had just <laughs> my parents had just purchased. Now, as an adult, I know those are expensive. At the time, Apologies. I didn't really think about it. So, yeah, my dad came in and I remember we we heard him coming or we saw him coming. And so we quickly tried to hide the shot glasses and anything. And we just all were standing there like guilty looking. And all he did was say, we're discussing this tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And he left. Yeah. But I remember being very scared of the impending doom, which yeah. led us all into a complete oblivion the rest of the night. It did. And my first kiss with um with a gal, actually. Oh jeez. Wait. We won't we won't name names. Okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I also wasn't the only one. No, no, no. Kissed, so it wasn't of course. Like I do remember my little yes, closeted, yes, yes. My of little closeted lesbian self was like, this isn't what I fantasized. This is not how I thought this moment would happen, but it's oh interesting that that occurred on the same night as my first drunk. And I, I, when I talk about my sobriety, I often talk about this night because it's, it's very symbolic to me that both of those things happened on the same night. Eve. Yeah. Eve. <laughs> wow. You're right. So from there, I think that we all just sort of drank when we could get away with it. Honestly, we were still under our parents' roofs. We were mm-hmm. parents. We were under our parents roofs isn't a word is it roofs roofs no mm-hmm. yep all of the above <laughs> and so right. from there I don't think it the frequency wasn't as alarming as until we got to college just based on access and then as we turned 21 and we're able to drink mm-hmm. as freely that's when things really really went off the rails I mean yeah I'll only speak for me so but I think the the only reason that would keep me from indulging farther sometimes was because I knew I would start throwing up. But I always wonder if I didn't have such a violent reaction the next morning, how much worse would it have been? That was the only thing stopping me. It wasn't that I didn't want to participate. It wasn't that I was ready to face the cringy texts I would send to people or like conversations or choices I made. It was purely because I was like, oh, this will pain me in the morning so I I'm interested now to look back at that that was my only bumper there was no Mm -hmm. like there was no consideration of what my life would be like without it it was more just like oh I'll be violently ill so I might as well stop right now and sometimes I still didn't so anyways yeah it's interesting I think you have always been better boundaried when it came to that and who knows if that was kind of the chicken or the egg before figuring out like your body tolerance and simply what you could physically handle without just wanting to die the next day I I definitely had a high tolerance I definitely had my share of of violent hangovers um but it never occurred to me that like oh maybe I'm drinking in excess it was just like this is what you do pretty much from the jump of my drinking career it was I was taught to binge that was the fastest route to the state of bliss slash oblivion that I was ultimately trying to achieve um and that's how I lost my mind and honestly that's what I needed to do to drink drinking was the solution for a long time it it was what I needed to to be at ease um and there was also like this kind of competitive quality of like 
it wasn't even consciously like I can out drink you. I don't know who I was showing off for or how, why I was taking pride in that. But I think that's, that's the way I saw it glorified in our culture. And I simply would not be the one to shut it down. I was a very social drinker and I would, if the party was continuing to go on, I was there. I was never going to be the one to be like, okay, that's enough for me. Like if you were still going and I was having a good time, then I would, I would be right there with you. And so the, yeah. the number of drinks would just accumulate despite knowing that I would not feel well the next morning. And it was just kind of like a rinse and repeat. Yeah. I couldn't day drink all day and then go into the night. Mm -hmm. um, I had stamina issues, like endurance issues, which is probably for the best. Yeah. Um, so you would not be able to count on me to be able to hang day and night. I would always just do the one. Um, but again, I would, my body would just completely shut down. I would just go to sleep. So there was no, there was no like making it to a.m. for me. What? I'm remembering that party that we went to in high school where we were both asleep by 10. Oh. It was that your bathtub night, not to put you on blast. Oh, we went to a, a person's house that was a year above us. It was a lot of like older, like two a grade or two above us and that yeah. was really important at the time I it, now it would be like 31 32 33 who cares and so mm -hmm. I I felt that idea of just like trying to keep up and act cool and so we were drinking from a water bottle just straight <sighs> liquor I can't so yeah that was that was the most shortest lived experience <laughs> but that was so horrendous um that was one of my most embarrassing and quick most embarrassing and most early experiences with such regret from mm -hmm. the way that I reacted and and just mortifyingly. Thankfully, we were both safe from anything. I it mean, it was so bad. Like, yeah, thank God so we were with some safe people. Our high school was notorious for just like a sexual assault. Yeah. Phobia, race, like all of the things. It was a brutal environment. And so thank God we were with like safe people safe people that so that's another part of it there was so much risky behavior happening mm -hmm. just being out like in the mm -hmm. dark in college walking home mm -hmm. like all of that could have gone so south so yeah anyway okay so let's fast forward a little bit so mm -hmm. okay so we're we're in college we're binge drinking often but we're still making it work. So that was another barometer that I think was unfair was that I was uninterested in looking at my drinking behavior because in my mind, I was still working and going to college. I was still graduate. I graduated early. So I, I chose to believe since I was quote high functioning that there was no mm -hmm. reason to look into this, mm -hmm. which really just stunted my spiritual progression without me knowing it. Now upon hindsight, I was like, I wish I had had a little bit more internal work happening, but there was no, there was, there was none of that. So fast forward. Okay. So now we graduated and we're living together and see my experience during that time was, I guess I just maybe have rose colored glasses. Don't remember drinking being that huge of a part of our life anymore at that point. Oh no, <laughs> please enlighten me. I mean, I think we weren't spending as much time together despite living together. Yeah. I remember that was when I was working in Fort Worth and that was the job that I had was, it was very male dominated and it was this really fast paced, like high stress job. And I was doing my peak drinking there, like going to happy hours. So you probably wouldn't have seen me doing okay. my drinking. I see. Right. But I definitely remember getting like blitzed at the pool and then winding up 
the pool at our apartment and then yeah, winding yeah. up in this neighbor's house. Well, that was also the period where I think actually it was on my way to meet you to look at this apartment where I got into my car accident. Yes. I blacked out at the wheel. Yeah. Leaving a golf tournament from said job. It was a charity golf tournament um, hosted by the place I was working at and was out in the sun drinking tequila all day. Yeah. And they let me drive home. They let me. I mean, I left and I drove home. Um, tried to drive to meet you because we had an appointment to go look at the apartment and I fell asleep, blacked out, same diff at the wheel and rear-ended someone on yeah. the highway in the Texas Motor Speedway and came to in the grass, like in my car, veering off Jeez. into the grass and walked away with a burn on my arm and the people I hit, I mean, thank God they were, they were okay. I think it was like two, it was parents and a, like a teenage son. And he had to go to the hospital for like a mild concussion or something. Um, car was totaled. Field sobriety test began by the officer. And honestly, like privilege and probably a little pity is what kept me from getting a DUI that day or going to jail, which oh, I very geez. much should have. Do you remember, not to like put you on this, but I do remember feeling real let down because that felt so... We that felt so big to me because I really wanted to live there. I think if I remember, I wanted to live at Sagestone, but Chick Fil A was dangerously close to our house. Oh my god, spicy chicken biscuit! (laughs) So at the time, I felt like I've got it all set up. All you know, I just want you to make sure you like it, and then we. I knew the layout I wanted, and we like. I feel like it was in motion, and then. But whatever happened, I remember feeling like because you weren't responding, so I was just like, "Man, dude, I can't believe she ghosted me on this. This is important." Yeah. Um. So I do, I do remember my feeling towards it. Once I found out why, then I just felt like relief that you were okay. Cause that was terrifying. And you were, I do remember your reaction when you told me like you were very riddled with guilt. You mm-hmm. were n- not doing well mentally after that, which would make sense. Uh, so I wasn't about to just be like, well, thanks for standing me up anyways. Like it became like, oh shit, this was something big going on this day. Yeah, so, I appreciate you not piling it on, but totally valid that you felt that way. And I think it was probably a larger theme of like Rachel is, I was unavailable to many yeah. of my relationships throughout my life, especially when alcohol was my like main source of, of relief, because literally um, half my brain is offline. So yeah, that's part yeah. of me has no, no access to show up. And I, yeah. I you think that that situation and the guilt and shame that I know that I felt would be enough for me to question like, hmm, like maybe, maybe this would be a wake up call and kind of how you were talking about your own substance use. Like if you weren't so having such a physical response, would you have kept drinking? I think like if my consequences were more, not tangible, but like more punitive, like if I'd gotten in real serious legal trouble and I wonder if those things that happened, would I have stopped drinking sooner? so many factors to to what if about but alas that did not stop me but i think that that's important for you to speak on some there is like you were saying other others that you have met in recovery that do have a story like that they said this is my wake up moment this is this was the day that i hit my rock bottom and i chose to change but um what i love about your story and what i think is more is very relatable to a lot is it was more nuanced and it was more gray and it was more of a gradual feeling of your life moving at a different pace than those that you love and feeling separation from them. So I'd love for you to talk about that actually. And we'll fast forward to 
the year 2017 for you and however much you want to expand here but this is this was in my opinion and I think yours this is this was the year that the change started to become you know very apparent to you so some background was me Rachel and two of our other friends were all in this little four person friendship that was very strong that started when we were in junior high um and the three of us not Rachel, but the other three of us all got married in 2017. So that we couldn't have planned because we were all with our partners for various amounts of time, but we all got married in that year. So the first of us um, was our friend Avery got married in June. Then I got married in September. And then our friend Katie got married in October. And so Rachel was a part of all of these activities and, and celebrations. And there was bachelorette parties for all three of us and then wedding stuff and then the weddings. And so it was a very, very big year. We all were living, you, we were all living in the DFW, I guess at the time. Yeah. I moved back from the Grand Canyon. I was working yeah. and living in the Grand Canyon for a few months. And then I would add on to what you just named, you know, my college roommate was getting married Two of my oh. friends from Dallas, Caitlin and Joanna, shout out lesbians. They were getting married. Yeah. Uh, we love to see it. So it was like five to six of my like nearest and dearest people. Okay. You're year. right. It was a huge year. I mean, I went to 12 weddings that year. So that was just, oh, there was something, there was something in the water. Um, but okay. So, so take the floor here because this, I did not know until truly recently that this was sort of your decision to look at sobriety in a, in a more rooted way in your life. Oh gosh. Yeah. So 2017 was definitely the year of my gradual bottoming out. Um, it's so, everything is cumulative. So I, I will try to be brief, but definitely the years preceding had a, a major impact on why it all kind of came to a hill uh, to 2017. Honestly, my whole life, if I look back, like, all of this maladaptive behavior just kind of like came to a, a peak in 2017. What had kept me, you know, functioning for so long, the tools that I did have, albeit very limited, alcohol being a huge one, also marijuana is a big part of my story. Um, those are main, my main kind of go-to um, tools outside of just pure avoidance and conflict. Um, yeah, conflict avoidance, people-pleasing, uh, repression, from an early, early age. So come 2017, I've moved back from the Grand Canyon where I honestly, like I had such a good time there and, and kind of cleaned out uh, my system inadvertently because I was so much of a social drinker that just wasn't really happening as much out there. But I came back and um, really quickly realized like how badly I had left things when I moved away to the Grand Canyon. I was very much running away, I think needing to get away from some real people, places, and things, dynamics um, in Texas. And um, obviously was excited for the year ahead and celebrating all my nearest and dearest people. It was like, there's no question that I'm not going to be there for all of the showers and bachelorettes and the I'm in a few of these weddings. So like, I'm looking forward to this. Um, but didn't I really underestimated how ill-equipped I was to be in in relationship and, and I, it became very stark to me how I felt about our friendship and the friendships that you just named, but how that, that wasn't felt or that wasn't being communicated effectively by me. And I felt myself sort of on the outs um, and also exhibiting a lot of behavior that was just like purely fear-based, like self-centered, reactionary, because I simply had no tools. All I could do was just 
drink or smoke and avoid and just hope that the dust would settle and you know I didn't mean to so you're not gonna be mad at me if I didn't like mean to hurt your feelings so no kind of um, access to accountability it all came to a hilt um, middle of 2017 or maybe towards the end of 2017 um, I had just gotten myself into some pickles with friends, putting mutual friends in some uncomfortable positions. Um, I'm trying to speak in a general way because I don't think the details are super important here, but um, I found myself really isolated in the distress that I was in. And I recognized kind of how much time I had let go without cultivating my friendships and again it, like I had no means of accessing the like well of I'm getting choked up like thinking about it I had no access to communicate how important these people were to me and like I just thought they knew I just assumed of course it's they know. so wild to hear your experience now because my my perception of that year was that it did feel like you were spinning out and it did feel like you were kind of making decisions all during times of binge drinking episodes that were impacting friends that were all within within our friend group so it was difficult because I I felt sort of put in the middle of a lot of situations mm -hmm. and so I felt distant from you because I felt like come on man like this is I I was in my selfishness too of like this is impacting like, other people are hurt that I love because of you, of the behavior you were exhibiting, but then you yeah. were also a close friend of mine. So I felt this weird middle ground where I did start to feel a little bit distant from you. Mm -hmm. Um, but my, my, my thought was that it was carelessness and you're like, that was truly the farthest from what I was feeling. Oh, I was like wanting to wanting to be there for you and I couldn't. So that's this honestly it's healing for me to hear on mic right now because truly if I look back at that time I feel I feel neglected. I just I'm really shocked to hear you say that all that you wanted to do was show how much you did care and how much these meaning these relationships did mean to you because I didn't yeah. I didn't know and for you to just be like how do they not know how close I am and how much this means to me and how badly I feel that I you know mess this up that wasn't my experience and that's in real time and so my albeit distracted because I was getting married I was moving across the country to Georgia I had a lot yeah. of other things that were sort of making me look at my life in a way of I think milestones tend to do this um you know, pregnancies or getting married or moving or uh, leaving to go to college, these things in your life that they make you kind of reflect on what you did to get to that point mm -hmm. and what matters to you. And so I definitely was kind of operating in a different wavelength anyways. Mm -hmm. but wow. I just, I can't believe that I can now, but I just, how well, feeling how you would have been, how could you have, like, I, I hadn't met myself I was yeah. neglecting myself. So of course you felt neglected. You, I, I was neglecting our friendship. I didn't realize what it took to be in close relationship and to cultivate that trust and that intimacy. Yeah. You and I've always like had it easy. There's just something, our birth charts align. And so there's a lot that like, just doesn't need to be spoken with us. And we kind of yeah. just like speak a similar language. Two dum-dums. <laughs> we are, we way. are. Team, we are. <laughs> In our own special way, we are. For sure. Um, but 
you know, I saw how you were developing your relationships with other people in our friend group. And I saw like how you all showed up for each other. And it just all occurred to me finally in 2017, how like no one was asking me to do that. I didn't know how to offer that to my, to anybody, because again, I was only, I'm only able to show up as deeply with others as I've met myself. And again, this is why I go back to my lifetime, my lifelong history of repression and avoidance. Like that's what I was doing internally from a very young age, especially like being closeted where we grew up, North Central Texas, very Christian, very conservative. You know, the, the early aughts were rife with homophobic language. And in our high school, again, that climate was really hard to be different. It was dangerous in my view. And I'm kind of naturally a little bit of a private person. So all of these things that kept me safe for so long, I now realized that they had really hindered my ability to express like the depth of feeling that I have everyone thinks I'm just like callous and aloof and I can see how they thought that because I wasn't I didn't know how to how to let the the guard down and um and I didn't know how to be accountable for for, for real like impact that I was causing like harm that I was causing based on again this lack of tools the lack of tools that I had um and so what would I do? Like I, I hit my bottom and I remember just like sobbing and what my bottom was, it wasn't, you know, the the car wreck, it wasn't the the making a fool of myself or losing control of my bodily functions, multiple occasions, like scary things when I look back. Um, and it wasn't even this moment where it was my bottom. It wasn't even like, <laughs> I didn't even stop drinking after I got to this really, it was ultimately just isolation. That was when I was the most like, um afraid I felt hopeless like a lot of suicidal ideation I was just like that would be easier because I truly just don't know what to do to fix this I'm lost I have no and I can't talk to anyone about this because I don't know how you all were like busy having this beautiful time of your lives so that I like, couldn't put it on you but even if I could I wouldn't know how so there was really only you know maybe one person that that saw kind of how dark it was and I'm really thankful to to that person for being there for me. Um, but what did I do? I, I moved to California to, <laughs> to just run away from everything and, and chase what I thought would save me, which was another relationship and, you know, just a, a new change of scenery. And to be, to be fair, I think those things did save me in a big way and yeah. that move was really needed, but it took another like few months into 2018, ultimately when I, when I finally accidentally found my way into sobriety, it wasn't even intentional. What do you mean? <laughs> I wanted to go to therapy. I called the Kaiser hotline and was like, hi, therapy, please. Um, knew that I'd been putting that off for far too long. And they said that um, because there's such a need in the Bay Area for mental health resources, you know, they kind of filter people into several tracks. Um, and so they asked me about my substance use for whatever reason, I was honest with them, which honestly, my, my, my numbers weren't very high in my mind. It wasn't like I'm pounding 10 drinks a day. But if you look at the recommended, you know, intake for, for different bodies or different, you know, gender identities, they have limits. And I was well over the limit compared to what is recommended, which isn't much. Um, and so based on that, they said, okay, well, you know, we'll give you access to a therapist if you go through this chemical dependency recovery program, i.e. rehab. 
Um, so I went to an outpatient rehab program and their, their theory of change was that if you clear the fog in your mind, you remove the substances, then you'll really be able to get to the guts of what's coming up for you and really work on what you need to. But if you're still getting messed up and fogging your head and, and not actually facing what's going on, um, there's only so much therapy can do. So yeah. I kind of accidentally got sober and just did what I was told. Damn. I didn't ever yeah. know that. I didn't realize that it started from a therapy call and then kind of naturally unfolded. I have experimented and experienced times of sobriety. Uh, my husband doesn't drink, so I don't, and I don't drink by myself. I only drink socially. And those experiences have gone down and down and down. Honestly, just raising a toddler is very much uh, a turnoff to drink in my, in my experience. Not everyone feels that way. Sometimes people after they have a child, they actually drink way more in their life, which I can see why it's very stressful. Mm -hmm. um, but I say that because I didn't drink for, you know, nine months with Wyatt and I was underprepared for now having a reason not to drink as far as somebody growing in my body helped me. Cause I was like, mm -hmm. it, I don't, I was not ever tempted to. Um, and it, that was fine, but I was underprepared for how hard that would be. I don't, I didn't even consider myself a major drinker at that time in my life. Um, but it did, uh, rise up a lot of things within my friendships and within my spirituality and within my relationship that I was underprepared for. And that is, I hear a lot from people that got sober that it actually kind of, the inner work started and that shit was rough. <laughs> um, you don't have your barriers and you, you don't have your, you don't have any vices anymore and you have to kind of face things head on. And I was very underprepared for that. I think it ended up working out fine. But I just remember that. I remember that being tied to sobriety for me. And then times where I've been sober since, I've also experienced that where it feels like uh, my, you know, my brother went through a tragedy this summer that you guys spoken on about the podcast, but he did almost pass away. And during that time, I was so tempted to drink, but I knew I had to raw dog my feelings and I like would make that joke. I'm like, oh, unfortunately, I have to feel my feelings because people would say like, can I meet you for a drink? And you know, what it and often would extend an olive branch in the way of like, do you want to not think about this? And I did, you know, share a beer with my dad once. But other than that, the whole summer, I was not I I did have to face it head on. And honestly, almost the entire time I was like, mm, it would have been easier if I could have just drank some of these nights. So I was so tempted. You know, I didn't ever put these personal, I, I wasn't in a program. I wasn't, there was nobody that would have, you know, I was by myself in a hotel. I just remember being like, no wonder people don't look under the hood. Mm -hmm. I just remember feeling like, no wonder this is so hard. Ignorance to look at is this. truly bliss. Yes. And just to look at it head on, I just had to feel all my feelings and grieve in real time. And honestly, it sucked. Uh, but yeah. okay, that that whole thing was just to say, uh, did you have any experiences like that? So once you stopped, you know, having substances in your life, marijuana, alcohol, were, did you have just this wake up moment immediately? Or were you just like, oh, now I have to look under the hood. And this kind of is difficult too. And I don't want to I really don't want to be fear-mongering here or say it has to be so hard after. I just do think that that might be glossed over, which I've listened to a sobriety book recently was talking about that, that she thought the hard work had already been done when she was running. 
And then when she mm-hmm. stopped consuming substances, that's almost was like day one, square one of her addressing so many different relationships in her life. So that's intense. It's very intense. Um, it's, it, this has been the most challenging period of my life these past several years. Um, it was maybe even easier in very early sobriety. Um, but, you know, kind of just to reemphasize the point about low bottoms or like, you don't have to get the DUI. You don't have to kill somebody. You don't have to be in prison to decide to stop drinking mm-hmm. or to get sober. Like my bottom was, I should have, would have, could have had all those things happen to me, but it was ultimately my isolation. That was what got me seeking help. Um, and when I talk about sobriety, I often use it a little bit interchangeably with recovery but I think recovery is the broader term for me. Sobriety is like a big piece of that pie and was perhaps my entry into recovery. So it's a huge part of it. Um, but what became clear to me when I first got sober, thank God I did in that group recovery program, it was essentially group therapy. Um, and what I, what I quickly learned was that connection was the antidote to the suffering that I had, like needing to hear other people share their experiences, completely different backgrounds, completely different circumstances that got us there. But the feelings were what we all kind of connected on. And I could relate to the feeling that you have in this situation. And we could just be witnessed by each other. I had no idea how powerful that would be for me. But my recommendation or like something I want to share with people is that if you do decide to get sober, um, don't you don't have to do it alone like it and it can be very challenging if you're in a group of people where it's the norm in your friend group or it's the norm in your family like the pressures are real and um so my my big piece of advice is to find that community whether that's you know um, a spiritual community a 12-step program just a trusted friend like anyone that you can be honest with like hey like text them, I'm going into this situation with my family, or I'm going in to hang out with like the girls tonight or whatever it is, and just sort of have an ally that can witness you because the isolation piece for me is the most dangerous. Like that's where my worst thinking or my best thinking, depending on how messed up I am that day, like I I need a sounding board and I need help. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's so much peace that comes with with that, in my opinion, Um, especially as you continue on with sobriety and really start experiencing the feelings that you've been shoving down for a long time in my case for 30 years Mm -hmm. going on maybe I was in my late 20s at the time so at least you know two decades community piece is where that gets really normalized and humanized and you get to you get to kind of right size your experience. There's always someone that's had it worse. It's not to say that anyone we all have suffering, but I'm saying the the connection is the antidote to that, and we all get space to to show up with our suffering, and, and we don't have to do it alone because I think that's what scares people is that they're going to be left to deal with these things on their own, and I'm just you don't have to. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, Rach. I also wanted to point out that if you are loving someone that is struggling with addiction, there is a ton of support and free groups that you can join or network groups online or offline that can really aid in also that feeling of isolation and navigating loving an addict. Uh, there's, I saw a quote that was like, there's no 
there's no torture like loving an addict and there's no torture like losing one. And that really, I know, is an experience that people have with their family, with their close friends, with their kids, with their spouse. And so on the, on the topic of getting support and feeling not alone in an experience, there are a ton of resources around that too. So if that strikes your fancy, uh, definitely look in your area because you'll be shocked at how much support there actually is. Yes. And oftentimes for free. Often for free. Some of these Often for free. Operate under um, the mantle of quote unquote corporate poverty, which I think is so radical, literally, and just dope in this day and age where there's so many people just like hawking spirituality courses and like recovery courses. It's like there are some tried and true models that that are literally for free. And it's all about just being of service to to other people who need support. Yes. And that's what I did. And it wound up being another inadvertent step into spirituality, which. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So on the spirituality piece team, as you're listening, I want you to like really set the stage here that in high school, we never talked about faith. There was a few of us, you know, we had a Jewish person that was, you know, friends with us. And then me and Avery were raised Catholic, but didn't really identify as much during the time. And then Rachel had my dad's her- Jewish. Yeah. And shout out Elliot. And then Judy is um, Presbyterian. Okay. So both, both very secular, like we sure. went to church two times and my okay. mom gave up. <laughs> right. So during that time, we, I don't remember a time of us talking about faith. So it was mm, not a huge not. Didn't talk about faith. We did not talk about spirituality. Me personally, during that year, when I was 15, uh, I was raised Catholic, but then that year my parents said, you know what? We raised you the way we thought uh, we wanted to raise our kids, but now you're free to do whatever. I toyed with uh, joining some non-denominational churches and Bible churches, did that for a little bit, met met some great friends, but ultimately didn't have a strong organized religion base uh, during that time. Uh, but anyways, I just find it fascinating now that we are talking about faith so much in our friendship, and I never thought that we would get to a point where we have very similar faith experiences or beliefs about spirituality or higher power. And so I would love for you to talk about how that sort of entered your life at the same time sobriety did. Um, By accident. So (laughs) I, as part of my um, like outpatient program that I was doing, so they really recommend going to at least two, what they call outside meetings, which can be in, you get to choose the program. I'm so fortunate to have gotten um, sober in the Bay Area, where there, there's like a spiritual hub. There's a lot going on here in terms of recovery communities and, and various programs, some 12-step, some not. Um, 12-step programs are definitely the, the biggest in terms of um, reach and history. They're just, they're everywhere. So I wasn't doing as I was told, which was going to two outside meetings a week to try to build this external community so that when I was inevitably moved out, I would have community again the mm-hmm. importance of, of this community aspect um they threatened to kick me out when i was again for some reason honesty was like coming through in this program but i was letting i let them know i wasn't actually going they threatened to kick me out so i finally went and checked out a 12-step meeting and i was immediately like absolutely not this ain't it this definitely ain't, ain't it, it. Not for you. god's all over the walls there's prayers people oh. are putting hands they're praying they're crying like there was such this like this I was confronted with other people's faith and their emotions and I was just like so uncomfortable so it was just an it was another level 
deep of kind of the work I'd already started doing, but it was like all very new to me. And of course, God, prayer, um, so much of that is coded to me, like religious language and growing up where we did, religion wasn't a safe place for me as it was practiced in my community, it, it, you know, being part Jewish, being gay, it was just like, there was a lot of factors in my society and the broader culture telling me that like, you don't belong here, like this part isn't for you. So it was just never something I thought I needed, this connection to a higher power. Um, I went back to a different 12 step meeting. This one was um, a queer meeting. And that's where I first heard this person speaking about their experience with anxiety and how that drove their substance use. And they referenced a prayer that one of the lines within it says, relieve me of the bondage of self. And those words like clicked in for me of like that, that is my experience. Like all of these things that I have done to this point where I thought like, these are my self-protective mechanisms. Like this is how I survive and get through the world. I'm now like, bond in bondage to this and I can't escape it and my relationships are suffering and I feel so alone so I'm like okay door starts cracking open of like maybe there's something like for me here let's try it I feel very fortunate to have found a group where I had access to people who matched my experience my lived experience women predominantly women-led meetings was where I found like a real safe space and the first person that I really began working with through the steps was someone who there, there are certain programs that can really beat you over the head of like, you're a piece of shit. Like, so you can't trust yourself. And my whole life to that point had been like, I already can't trust myself. Like I need to feel some power. I can't be completely powerless. And I, I'm really grateful to have worked with someone who taught me that I can, I can be empowered within myself. I can do that through a relationship with something spiritual. And she helped me really kind of design my own higher power, design my own recovery program. There really mm -hmm. is, in my view, as many ways into sobriety um, as there are people. It's all unique to you. You don't have to do, you can take what you like and leave the rest. Also, just to say, take what you like of what I'm saying and completely leave the rest. I know nothing. I know what I think I know about my experience. I have a lot of ideas and opinions about yeah. what I have perceived to be my experience, but that's constantly unfolding and changing as I get more hindsight. But I feel the, I feel the same. Of no, of course. And I, I do feel the same about create this own version of it for myself. Because me personally, that's when I really started lighting up in my faith was when I did step away. This isn't everyone's experience. But for me, when I stepped away from organized religion and going to church and going to a place that I didn't feel like was the exact right fit. Um, ultimately, I haven't been searching if there is another place, another abode that would be a better fit. Uh, right now, I feel really comfortable that I have this personal relationship with God, higher power, spirit, whatever you want to name it. That doesn't really matter to me. What matters to me is that it feels so much more free flowing and, and abundant and it feels personal and it feels intimate and it feels really safe and exciting and conversational. And all of these things were not how I felt when I was actually faced with more God rhetoric and 
Catholicism and the ritual aspects and traditionalism of Catholic uh, mass. So loving where I'm at right now. And I love that I'm at a place where I don't feel like I have to really explain what it looks like to anybody else. I used to feel really comforted by the idea of like, oh, if I say I'm Catholic, then people just, they know what that means. Back when I was really, really young, um, I was comforted by just being like, oh, my parents picked this for me. I'm Catholic. And then it's like, if you know, you know, and I went to a Catholic school. So then I was surrounded by others that were raised the same as me. And I loved that experience in the sense of I'm still friends with all of those people today. It's a very tight knit community. I'm very close to a lot of those people. Yeah, I loved I loved it um, outside of the Catholicism, which was why we were all there. And I'm friends with plenty of people that are still practicing Catholics. I'm friends with people that have left the church. I'm friends with people of all different religious experiences, but where I'm at right now feels really comfortable and less guilt-ridden, a lot less guilt-ridden and shame-based um, and my own. So I like that you picked about like, take what you like, leave the rest. Like you can concoct your own experience with a higher power and you can't be wrong, which is leads me to my next segue. Um, a mantra that when you said, you know, you had this wake up moment when that person was talking about their anxiety and the quote that they said, that's how I felt with you when I was going through my infertility, which is still ongoing for me. But uh, you use your imagination team about the word that was used, but you had said, don't, you can't screw it up when you're talking about God's plan and divinity. If that's something you believe in, there's no human action that you can make to screw up what is already written. And that really relieved me personally. And you can jump in here, but of so much anxiety I had for my experience, which was pregnancy testing all the time, having a lot of anxiety around being pregnant and potentially miscarrying and all of this. And I just felt like, am I, am I stepping away from my spirituality by trying to white knuckle this experience? And you just very simply said you and your friend had this had this mantra of you can't screw it up. Like if you feel held by God, spirit, higher power, universe, then it's already, you're already in the roller coaster and you're already strapped in. So you don't have to like feel like every single move, not to say you shouldn't move around the world with grace and compassion to others and that you don't have accountability for your life. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it relieved me of being like, you know what, if I feel like taking a test when I would be early and not missing my period yet, I really don't have to beat myself up about it. And so after you told me that, that really like unlocked a lot for me that I then shared with Kendall and now she uses. And so I just, I really like that, uh, that piece of, you finding your faith as well as sort of like if we are divinely held then I'm just moving forward and tell me what you feel about all of that yeah I mean you 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 said it so eloquently and and summed it up nicely but um yeah just to add my two cents you can't screw it up it's really hard to not say the word I, I know I know you know I think I know for myself and I think for a lot of women or people socialized as women senses the sense of urgency and the sense of perfectionism is so innate and this need to like caretake everybody and just like be perfect and show up perfectly I never fancied myself a perfectionist I would just never wanted to make a mistake so it took, that was just my different version my flavor that came out in therapy shout out therapy by the way shout out therapy because um, that's when I learned I have perfectionistic tendencies also which I was like I'm not perfectionistic because I had a very specific view of what that looked like Right. Uh, turns out, team, uh, I do. <laughs> as uh, do breaking news. <laughs> as do as do many. So as do many, and I I was living a life again, self centered fear, reactionary, um, 
a ton of controlling and managing myself, like scanning other people to make sure that they're like liking me or perceiving me okay. Control people, places, and things for my self-serving comfort. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and that's, it's all, it's never like from a, a place of malintent, like, you know, I want to, but it's me trying to control and manage ultimately uh -huh. and grasping and gripping to figure it out. Uh -huh. um, my former uh, sponsor once told me that like the, the question why is not a spiritual question to just it's it's not present it's mm, it's, uh -huh. it's meant it's, it's usually there's like a curious nature that comes with it I'm always like wondering why things are the way they are but when it comes to like how can I figure this out like figure it out is not a spiritual mantra uh -huh. that's me kind of gripping and controlling and managing so yeah, this idea of you can't screw it up means there's no, it, it's an escape from this sort of binary thinking that I think is also innate in a lot of us, um, that there's a right and a wrong. What's right to you may be really wrong to me. So who's to say, uh -huh. like, there is no right or wrong. And as you wisely caveated, it's not to say that we're not accountable for their actions and the the, the real harm that we can have on other people. I try to have a set of values that I'm aspiring to. And that's sort of my compass when I'm thinking, mm -hmm. what are my options here? Mm -hmm. But you can't control the outcome. And actually what we think we want is sometimes not what we wind up needing. And like, there's so many oh. times where I got what I think I wanted. And I'm like, this ain't what I thought it would be. This is no. Or finding out later that I was spiritually held that I would not have been able to see up Creek. So oh, there's so there's many so times many outcomes that are possible, like literally infinity outcomes. And that's mm -hmm. part of my spirituality is like, it's so uncomfortable and I'm not good at this. I'm working on it, but like leaning into the mystery, leaning into mm -hmm. the nuance, leaning into the billions literally of outcomes that are potentially available to us. If we just do no wonder you don't want to do that. That's terrifying. It is terrifying, but it's also a little bit freeing. Like in yeah. a paradoxical way, it's like, oh, it's kind of why like looking in the cosmos is my, is a version of my spirituality. Like uh -huh. perspective is my spirituality. Yes. Yeah. Ooh. Like, I am just this tiny little thing. Yes. Not to, again, not to say that our lives don't have meaning and like that's yes. what our mission here is, is to figure out what that is for us. It's, it's so scary. It's like looking out at the Grand Canyon. It's mm -hmm. like, oh my God, I can't fathom. And it's so scary. Like one gale wind and you're falling hundreds of feet but okay, let's, it's a little morbid. Let's pretend that we're not actually like, sure. into our yeah, yeah, yeah. That's feeling I once yeah. I recently described in therapy of like going through all this grief of like, everything changes, like no one sticks around, like life is lost. What's the point? <laughs> um, really melodramatic, but it's true. Life is lost. The only thing that stays the same is change. Like mm -hmm. everything's changing. And I felt like I finally surrendered into that a little bit. And so I was letting go. I wasn't grasping to the boat or the shore. I was like, okay, it feels good. I feel some relief to not be gripping so hard, but now I'm floating in the middle of the ocean. It's mm -hmm. really scary. Yeah, it is. Ocean like I am. <laughs> but oh, 1000%. You know, relief too. yes, I think you and I are similar in this way. It, it manifested differently, but we have a very hard time just sitting in it. So we run from it in different ways. We love to just be like, but what's going to happen? You know, and right. I want to know. I theorize seekers, as you said, I love that word. Seekers were seekers of like new information. So that can really open up a lot of me spiraling, honestly. But then it's also a thing that makes me always fascinated in something new, which I love about mm -hmm. me and you. 
But I, yeah, I just love that. And I love that you said perspective is my faith. It's really an access basis. point into, yeah. into spirituality for me. And just to add a note on what you just said, there's this, um, I don't think it's a triad. It's just like a three-part process that we talk about in, in recovery. Sometimes there's awareness, acceptance, action. Mm-hmm. And it's so common for people to go from awareness straight into action, as you were mm-hmm. just saying, either by seeking or by just like, let me fix it. Let me figure it out. It's so easy for us to do that because we skip over the acceptance where, wherein lies the grief mm-hmm. and like the slowness and really just having to sit oh, with the, the painful okay. stuff. Cause well, I did it's such a too. feedback loop too. Like the action, I mean, the, the awareness into the action Then we're like researching stuff. We're curious, like nothing inherently bad there, but we find more things that we're now aware of. And I'm like, oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. And it can be this really like, it yeah. can be this continuum that keeps us from really like pausing. And that's where, that's where a lot of my intention towards my spirituality comes in is the power of the pause. <laughs> the yes. power of slowing down, especially when you live such like a fear-based, self-centered, reactionary lifestyle. Like it's just so important to take a breath, take a beat, ground in like the, the power of breath to truly literally calm the nervous system yeah and just kind of force the pause and the more pause you can get the more you can see what your options are because inevitably we do get into figure it out mode right but mm-hmm. the pause is what allows me to say to remind myself of these mantras that might sound like cutesy little trite truisms but in a pinch, when I'm in an anxious spiral, that shit saves my ass on a regular basis. 1000%. The power of pause is so illuminating in my parenting journey because I'm really trying to lead with, he's not, he's at an age where it, it he's not able to calm himself down yet. He needs help. To, you know, I, I'm akin to conscious parenting, but there's a lot of taking a deep breath, you know, and if he doesn't want to participate with me, I say, okay, mommy's going to take a deep breath. And so I just model that behavior. And honestly, Mm -hmm. I started doing it for him, but now I do it for me. And it's so helpful for me to pause in my parenting that I have now started to apply to other parts of my life. Mm -hmm. And I was, I run from the pause, dude. Like I didn't, I had no interest. I have had so many intuitive guides over the past couple of years. I started to formulate, you know, what I wanted help with was actually just being in peace because I used to be like, What's going to happen in my career? What When am I going to be pregnant? I used to always come in with a question of like timeline. Mm-hmm. Now I'm starting to be, you know, if I'm going to be asking for intuitive guidance, I ask, how can I feel most at peace in this season? Mm-hmm. Or sometimes I'll okay. say, how can I most support my my partner during this time? And so I, I treat it more open-ended, but then it's, it's way harder for me to want to take the advice then. Also, yeah. While we were talking, I was just thinking about the the whole personalized faith thing. And I might have said this on another episode, but I truly, if you if you are in the camp of believing that you are made in the divine and God's image, then all of the things that you like to explore, like he, she, it knows about. So for example, I used to feel astrology was really, really looked at as like devil work or demonic or had a negative connotation in my religious background, but now I find so much excitement from it. And I feel like I get a lot of comfort and understanding of self through it. And I sort of take the approach now. No, I don't sort of, I do. If I'm not harming anybody else, 
Mm-hmm. And I take this joke from Heather McDonald all the time. She says, God thinks I'm a hoot. Jesus thinks I'm a hoot. <laughs> I think about that too. I'm like, it, ha- it can be lighthearted. Like if I'm into astrology, he knows I'm into astrology. If you believe in he, she, it, universe, high spirit, whatever. Uh, then how can it be wrong? Right. How can, why not both? Why not both is often how I think. Why not yeah, astrology? I'm, I'm and love, yeah. I love the power of a yes. And like yeah. who, who invented the word, but it's, it doesn't have to be an either or that's again, the binary thinking, like why not just crowd in more. And also like with your thinking about it being double work, like, was that your idea or was that what you were taught? Was that, that was like, what I was taught. Was, that was what exactly. I was taught. So yeah. It wasn't actually your, you didn't believe that's true. That. I never, I never believed that. That's and true. There's so many voices like that in our head that are telling us like, this is how you look beautiful. Like this is what you are to be a good person. And it's like, take what you like, leave the rest people. Like yeah. as long as you're not harming anybody and you're, you're living in integrity and showing up as honestly and compassionately and open-minded as you can. Gorgeous. Do what gorgeous. you like. Do gorgeous. What <laughs> I love it. Okay, team. I guess that's it for us. So happy. How many years? You're five years in? Um, end of March will be five years. Nice, dude. One day at a time, though. Of course. One day and at a time. One day at a that's time. Another, but... That's another part of the the anxieties can be like, especially with people who are maybe thinking about exploring sobriety, but you know, can't imagine not imbibing for the rest of their life. It's mm-hmm. like, again, it, trying to figure it out is not a spiritual mantra and mm-hmm. we only are we only have today I mean it sounds kind of cheesy it doesn't though it doesn't it's very recentering to remember that it, it's just getting through today yeah all I have is my sobriety today and I can't you know I can't keep um what does people say you can't keep clean on like yesterday's shower or something like Ooh, that. yeah 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 I mean I can be like fairly clean like if, if I didn't shower yesterday that would be worse sure but but all that to say, like, <laughs> it depends on what I'm putting, where's my intention, with my spirituality? Have I, have I maintained my spiritual practice today? So. And it can change. I have a quick question for you. Yeah, please. I'm curious what your, what your first spiritual experience was. If you <gasps> Ever in my life? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Which may or may not be religious. Okay. So something that's a huge theme of my life was I, I was praying from a very early age. I mean, I can't even remember a time when I wasn't. So uh, the the prayers when I was really young, let's say four or five, were led by my my parents. But it was a, usually a gratitude. It's, it's kind of follow the same flow. Uh, and there's parts of it that I really still love. Uh, there was a, another part that showed my anxiety really young that then took a turn. But the main thing was, you know, thank, you know, God, thank you for this day. It was very, it was very gratitude based and it was always an ending to the day before I went to bed. And um, ultimately, I think that that practice is kind of sweet looking back, but uh, it, so it was just like, I'm thankful for my family. I'm th- you know, my parents would ask me open-ended, you know, what are you thankful for? So it was more of a gratitude prayer. And then it was, we would end, you know, with like, thank you, you know, for keeping me safe in my bed tonight. Um, Can't remember my life without it. So it had to have started before memories even started for me. Then, then as I got older, my parents like left me to do that. They weren't like tucking me in anymore. And so I was just doing that on my own. But I remember my prayer got longer and longer. It was always the same one. But uh, ultimately, this is when my anxiety, I used to have a lot of anxiety at night. They would be just different things. There was a whole period of time where I thought... (laughs) It's funny, but it was very real to me at the time. 
uh, I thought that the bears from the zoo were going to get out and then come in and literally attack me in the middle of the night. So I kept adding. So I, and then I would see a scary movie. Me and Avery saw this movie about a leprechaun that was scary. I've told you about this. Mm -hmm. I'll have to look it up, but it was a scary movie about a leprechaun. It was a horror movie. I was very, very sensitive to scared, scare stuff when I was young, really, really sensitive. So Avery, I think had seen it and then told me about it. We saw a clip of it together, but Avery had already seen the whole movie. I don't know, but leprechaun. (laughs) So this whole story was just to say my prayer got longer and longer and it started to be you know, thank you God for this day. Uh, please don't let any leprechauns, bears, ghosts. Like I just would start naming all of my fears, like come to get me, like, please protect yeah. me. But the list got longer and longer. Um, So that was sort of ma- manifested anxiety. But then a big, a big change. I remember in my prayer, I used to then not pray as often. And then I would always start with an apology. Always. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I haven't been praying. I was always starting with an, I'm sorry, always Aww. for years. And that's the Catholic guilt of that's it all. Catholic, yeah. Um, yeah, I really, really don't identify with telling a stranger, having to muster up telling a stranger something that you did wrong, like a sin that you're confessing. I really do not identify that as a grown adult myself now. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not know that person. I could talk on that for hours, but that that to me is in, in, insane uh, that I was having to think about, well, okay, what am I going to confess? So then I was always in this practice of thinking of what I did wrong because I would have to have material to tell the priest um, that was not healthy for me and mm-hmm. led me to have a lot of guilt with my relationship mm-hmm. with, with faith. Mm-hmm. So for years I was in this place of like, I always was self-shamed and, or I was being self-shaming and would start my prayers with, I'm sorry, I haven't been praying as much. And mm-hmm. often I would come to uh, God in a time of desperation when yeah. things were really, really bad. And then I would feel bad for not coming to him when times were good. So that would be most of it was me mm-hmm. apologizing for being like, now I'm in the dark and I didn't right. seek you in the light. Uh, so that's kind of my memories. Obviously I have memories of like the in- the smell of the incense. I still hate incense. Nick loves it, my husband. Mm-hmm. And I can't like, he'll, he'll buy incense sticks. And I'm like, please like I have a headache it's just so it, the the smell is just so overpowering to me it, it reminds me of going to Catholic mass I'd go every Wednesday and Sunday for years of my life I went to Catholic school you know so yeah but that's the biggest parts that I remember is my pr- my specific prayers so yeah I do think that I was always spiritually held uh, that's been proven time and time again in my life how much grace I've been given um, how many close calls I've had in my life truly yeah. life-altering and I've made it out so mm-hmm. I do feel spiritually protected um and always I really always have but uh and then just shout out Patrick Butson real quick my dad uh went to Harvard for divinity so that was a huge part of his life he was going to be a Catholic priest before he met my mom then he married her and had four kids so not a life of solitude after all uh, but with that Catholicism and traditions were very, very important to him my whole life. And so he started me with a gratitude journal as early as I can remember. And I would write down what I was grateful for, which I still think is such an incredibly powerful yeah. practice. It will change your life. For sure. It will, it will change your life. I go in and out now I ebb and flow, but it's been something that's been in my DNA as a person that I think has shaped me into an optimistic, grateful person overall, you know, not always we're human. But I do tend to see gratitude. Gratitude comes very easy to me. And I often tend to see things that were good that comes out of something, not in a toxic positivity way. It's just very easy for my brain to see what I got out of it that did help and shape me. So 
I have my dad to kind of thank for that because he instilled that way early on that then continued to be important to me as I grew up. Patrick, yeah. That's beautiful. Anyway. Well, dude, thanks for coming on today. Uh, This was fun. This was easy. I didn't expect it not to be. But uh, if anyone has any questions for um, Rach or I, just, you know, find us. Do you want to tag your socials? Do you want to just leave it be? Sure. Yeah, I'm really only I can tag you in the the show notes. Yeah, same here. Yeah. um, Totally down to talk more about sobriety, what whatever questions uh, folks have. Again, I only have my experience to share. Hopefully one person got, you know, an iota of something useful out of what I've shared today. Uh, but if sure. not, I don't get it. Yeah, just, just trash it. Yeah, turn yeah, turn us off. Delete it from um, the brain. <laughs> Make room for something else. Yeah, for real. Uh truly, sure. thank you. Thank you for taking the time and love you. Exactly. See you guys all <laughs> next time we're on. And I appreciate you guys giving me the grace of uh navigating a solo episode for the first time. Well done. Uh, all right. Well, yeah, see y'all. Talk to well, you later. Bye.